Amen. You may be seated this morning, and I want to invite you to take a copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. Uh, that chorus of that song, uh, oh no, he never lets go, that could easily have been a chorus that the church at Philadelphia uh, could have sang. The church at Philadelphia is uh, one of two churches um, that is commended, and uh, there is nothing negative that the Lord speaks to uh, this church. Uh, but they're commended. They're commended in several different ways. They're commended for their perseverance, and they're commended for how they've held on to the Word. And uh, they are just being commended and encouraged by the Lord. And I want to speak on that subject today uh, as we preach through uh, verses 7 through 13 of Revelation chapter 3 about embracing the promises of God, about embracing the promises of God. You know, as we've just been preaching through Revelation 2 and 3, chapters 2 and 3, we've been looking at what does a victorious church or an overcoming group of believers look like? How is it that God's at work in their life? What is it that is going on in their life? What is it that God calls us to? What is it that he calls us to lay down? And today we look at how an overcoming people of the Lord are people who faithfully embrace the promises of God. See, it's not enough for you just to know the promise of God, but you've got to appropriate the promise of God. You have to know the word, but you have to appropriate that word. That means you have to believe it for yourself. That means you have to take Jesus at his word and know that Jesus loves you more than yourself. He who has begun a good work in you is able to complete that work. He's able to finish what he has started in you. So it's one thing for us to know it, which we have to know it, and, but it's another thing for us to appropriate these promises of the Lord. And so I want us to read this passage together. This message is a message of encouragement. Man, some of y'all have been leaving here and, and you're texting me or you're talking to me through the week and saying, man, that was a strong word, but that was a great word for me or it was a great word for my family. And then others of you are like, man, is there ever an encouraging word here that comes uh, to these seven churches? And there is spots of that throughout the seven churches. Uh, letters, but especially here in Philadelphia, there's such an encouraging word for those believers in this uh, city called Philadelphia. And I want you to read that with me, beginning in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write it on him, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here in Revelation 3, uh, especially in verse 7, 
what the Lord begins to do is identify himself, and he presents himself as this holy one, the true one, right? Who has the key of David, who opens, and no one shut, and who shuts, and no one opens. And the, the speech there, the, the imagery is the imagery of the gates of a city, the gates particularly of Jerusalem. He has this ability to open, right? And no one can shut it. He has the ability to shut it. And no matter how much we try to open it, we cannot open that gate. He presents himself with three particular words. He says he is the Holy One. It's important for us to know as we begin to look at these promises that these promises are promises from Jesus who is holy. He is holy in his character. He is holy in his words. He is uh, holy in his actions, and he's holy in his purposes or any wills. So what does that mean? Well, here's what it means when you start talking about the holiness of God versus our holiness. When we talk about holiness, we talk about we're set apart for a particular task. We're set apart for Jesus' sake. We're set apart uh, to be marked of the Lord. But when we talk about the holiness of God... It does speak about how he is set apart, how he's transcendent, how he's completely other. That means he's quite a bit different than you and I. If the Lord's different than you and I and he's better and greater, affirm that by saying amen. He, he's greater and he's different. He's other than you and I. But what he's really speaking about is this. Grudem defines the holiness of the Lord the best. He says that Jesus is uniquely set apart from everything else and nothing can be compared to him. He says God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and that he is completely devoted to seeking his own honor. So when we say that he is holy in his character, that means there is no sinful qualities about our Lord. He is completely holy. When we say he's holy in his actions, that means that he's never dropped the ball. Not one single solitary time has God ever made a mistake in uh, as he presents himself in the Godhead, as the Father, as the Son, as the Holy Spirit. It means that he is perfect in his words, that he's holy, that he is, listen to this, he is unable to contradict his own word, that he is true, he's holy to his word. And then concerning his own will, that which God purposes, that which God desires to come to pass, that that he wills for you, that which he wills for me, that which he wills for all of creation. What does that mean? It means that he is perfect in that. There's, there's not any way that he is going to drop the ball. And so he presents himself in verse 7 as this holy one, but then he says, I'm the true one. And so what does that mean? He's not only holy, but Jesus wants those people at Philadelphia he wants John to know on the island of Patmos. He wants you and I to know today that he is true. What does that mean? It means not only are his words true, right? That would be piggybacking on the character of holiness. But what it means is this. He's the genuine article. Jesus is the original. What, what does that mean? It means that he's not a copy. He is the authentic God and not a manufactured one like the ones that have been manufactured and scattered all throughout the cities of Asia Minor, including the city of Philadelphia. When we consider the promises of God, the promises of Jesus, we're talking about a person who is holy in his character, words, actions, and purposes. And we're talking about the original, authentic article. 
What does that mean? That means if God is God, there is no way that Jesus is going to break his promise to you. It means that he's not going to go against his word and will something to come to pass only for that thing not to come to pass. It's part of the immutable character and quality of the Lord. And then he finishes defining himself in verse 7 by saying that he is completely authoritative. This means that Jesus not only has all the authority of David with this idea or picture of the keys right to this gate, but as Messiah, Jesus has all the authority of the Godhead. It's really a picture of Isaiah chapter 22, verses 15 through 25, when you see Elikim raised up, and he's raised up to lead the children of Israel, and he's raised up in a way that they had began to uh, look and trust the ways of Egypt again. They had had a terrible leader in their place. And so God raised up Elikim as sort of a forerunner of the Lord, and he uh, possessed the keys of the city. And it was this picture and idea that God has this way of establishing righteousness in those positions of authority. It is this holy, true, and all-powerful Jesus who's Intention is to encourage the believers at Philadelphia and to encourage you and I here today. It is this idea, watch this, it is this idea that he not only wants to encourage us, but he wants to remind you and I today that he has the ability to overcome any opposition that you're facing in your life, whether it be a circumstance or a personality, and he has the ability to confirm the opportunity that you have to make a difference in God's kingdom for all eternity. See, Jesus knew um, their works. He, he knew what they were doing. He knew their allegiance to his word, their loyalty to his name. And now the Lord is about to say to them, because I have chosen to be faithful to you and you have responded to my faith with faith, the Lord says, I'm going to promise you some things here, Philadelphia. And it's really important for you to lay hold of this today, Calvary. Because these promises were not just for those group of believers um, back in the first century. These, these promises are for you and I today. These promises are God's very own word that he has spoken, but that he is sp speaking even now. Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter. Uh, chapter 1, verse 3, you're going to know verse 3 really well, but verse 4 is what I want us to focus on. He says, His divine power, the Lord's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. We, we've heard that. We try to comprehend that. But then he says in verse 4, by which Jesus has granted to us His precious and very great promises. So that through those promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. How is it that God is going to establish his people to overcome the world and be a victorious people? When we understand who he is and his character and we receive those promises. See, something that goes on in everybody's life once you become a believer is... You have to determine, am I going to believe what God says to be true about me, what God says to be true about my circumstances, what God says to be true about life in general, 
Or am I going to believe what Satan wants me to believe about myself or about my circumstances or about the condition of the world? And oh, my brothers and sisters, it is vitally important today for you to understand that God has not only a plan for your life, but he's carrying that plan out. How many of you would say, Pastor, no crime, uh, no, no, uh, there's no debate about it. I absolutely believe that Jesus Christ is sovereign. That means he has absolute authority and control, and he is in power. Let me see those hands of you who believe that this morning. So if you believe that's part of his very character and nature, it's imperative that you believe what he has to say about you and those things that he has promised you. So if it's of the utmost importance that we know what these promises are, let's begin jumping in and look at them. First of all, I would say to you, because I, it's already 1040 and I don't know how far I'm going to get. And so let me just give you these five promises and then we'll work through them as far as we can get. Number one, in verse eight, the Lord promises us salvation and with salvation, purpose. Salvation and purpose, verse 8. In verse 9, the Lord promises us vindication from our enemies. Vindication from our enemies. In verse 10, there is the promise from the Lord of protection during the judgment trials. Preacher, we going through the great tribulation. Whether we go through uh, all of it, half of it, or none of it, I'm telling you, we are protected by the one who has created us and redeemed us. If you believe that, say amen. I'll speak more about that, but you see that in verse 10. The Lord promises us protection during the judgment trials. The Lord promises us inspiration to persevere in verse 11. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have. And then lastly, in verse 12, he promises us identification for all eternity. I have to get to five, even if I skip two, three, and four. If you're good with that, say amen. He promises us identification for all eternity. So in verse eight, when he says, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. This open door is a picture of two things, not just one. If you do a quick reading of this and you're familiar with Paul's writings, uh, if you're familiar with Luke's writing in the book of Acts, you would say, well, an open door in the New Testament always pictures ministry. And it does, but it also pictures a couple of other things. It pictures entrance into the kingdom of heaven, entrance into the presence of the Lord. You see that in the book of Isaiah. You see it in the New Testament as well. And so this open door gives us access to the everlasting presence of the Lord. You say, preacher, you're going to have to proof text me on that because I, I've read this passage many times and I know that Philadelphia was established to do a good work and that's exactly what this means. This open door is that God's given them an open door to be able to minister and to evangelize and to win people to Christ. And, and that is true, but it's secondary, Right? There's no ministry apart from relationship. Do y'all believe that? Can we do anything on our own, right? Can we? He, the Lord says, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. No good thing can we do. And so what precedes ministry is relationship. It's uh, the presence of the Lord. 
In Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, listen to what he says. This is pretty much immediate context. He says, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, uh, which I heard speaking to me, like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. This is John being invited to, into even a deeper presence of the Lord so that he can see this vision that the Lord is about to reveal of himself and who he is and how he is going to carry out uh, really what's coming next after chapter 5 are the, are the seals and the trumpets and the bowl judgments. And so he is saying to John, come up here. This open door gives us access to the everlasting presence of the Lord. But this open door also gives us opportunity for ministry and evangelism. So God gives us salvation, his presence. He gives us purpose, his ministry. And so what does that mean for you and I today? It means this. Every single one of us here today and every person who walks the face of this earth, we were created to know God and we were created to serve God. We were created to know him through the person of Jesus Christ. And we are created to serve the Lord and make much of him and to delight in him so that his glory and his namesake may be made famous throughout all the world, throughout all the nations. We see that this refers to purpose or ministry in Acts chapter 14, verse 27. When Luke says, and when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how, watch this phrase, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, right? So this is a picture of Jesus opening a purpose for you, opening a door of ministry for you. And then he comes back in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 8 and 9, and he said, Paul said, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for what? A wide door. For effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And so he said, I'm going to stay right here and work because there's work to be done. There are people who are going to try to indoctrinate you in a wrong way. And so God's opening this great door, and so I'm going to stay, and I'm going to continue to make much of Christ. Do you all realize that today the promise of salvation and lifelong purpose awaits you? Do you realize that's the reason that you were brought into this world? Let, raise your hand here. I want to see 30 years old and younger. Raise your hand. 30 and younger. Don't, don't just raise it, Lord. Let me see it high. 30 and younger. Keep it up. I'm, I'm getting to you. Wow. Lots of 30-year-olds and younger in the house. Thank you. You can put your hands down. I, I want to speak a good word to you. Whatever you have heard about why you were born and why you exist, I want you to understand if you have yet to been told or you've yet to understand that you were created for God's pleasure to know him, to love him, and to worship him, I'm telling you plain, straight, and simple today, that is why you exist. God allowed you to be born so that you would know God through the presence of his son, Jesus Christ. But listen to this. And your purpose is not just to fulfill some job or some opportunity or some... It's, it's not just to fall in love like Nashville and Hollywood, right? That stuff don't work. Hello? How many of you are happily married, yet your spouse has failed you multiple times? Belinda and Steve, would you raise your hand? Yep, Belinda's back there in the back, right? 
Tracy and I would both raise our hands. Jimmy and Carol Ann, they'd raise their hand. You can be married 50 or 60 years and be tremendously in a healthy marriage, but when you look at your spouse, if you're honest, you know the spouse has failed me at some time in my life, and there's been multiple times I have failed my spouse. If you believe that to be true, say amen. And so you're not just created so that you'll just get married and then have some kids and have a good job and make some money and get a new car and get a a two-car garage. If that's all that life has to offer, man, we're going to be miserable people. But you were made to not only know God through the person of Christ, salvation, to, to have your sins forgiven, to have this wonderful treasure of understanding that Jesus died for our sins, he rose from the grave, he is alive today, and if we repent of our sins and we call upon him in believing faith that he is Lord, that we can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But it also means this, that once we are saved, it doesn't matter what we do, that we can glorify God because the purpose that we have is to help others know that joy and that blessing of what it means to know him. And so if you're working, praise God for that. You should be. If you bought a car, praise God for that. Man, drive it for God's glory and let someone, ever, uh, someone else use it every once in a while, all right? Uh, give somebody a ride along the way. If you're married, thank God for your marriage. If you're having kids, thank God for them. And help everything and around you to know the glory and the splendor of the Lord. The Lord promises us salvation and purpose apart from which I would have no hope. I would have absolutely no hope. Do you remember what your life was like when you had no hope? I remember being 19 years old, a sophomore at the University of Kentucky, reading Catcher in the Rye for a literature class, and I can remember just rolling over in bed at night and thinking, I have absolutely no idea why I'm here. What I thought I was there for was absolutely bringing no good thing to pass in my life. Um, I didn't even call them sinful things then. I just knew they were contrary. Um, I I knew that once I participated in them, Ecclesiastes, the pleasure of sin is just for a season. Right? Are y'all tracking with me? But I was so lost. I just, I didn't live like, oh, I'm sinning. I'm walking apart from God. I'm just telling you I was 19 and I had no purpose. I was 19, I had no hope. I was 19, I was trying to listen to Literature teachers teach on catcher in the rye and trying to find purpose in life. And if you're here today and you're like me, maybe you're not 19, a sophomore at UK, but maybe you're here and you're 45 or you're 55 or you're 75, maybe you're here and you're 15, and you're thinking, I'm still trying to figure out why I belong and why I'm here. It's because God gloriously brought you into existence. You are not here by accident, right? God has a plan for you. And he has this wonderful purpose-filled life to where you can make him known to others as you come to know him. So the Lord promises salvation and purpose. Number two, the Lord promises us vindication from our enemies. I will make them who, the synagogue of Satan, who, the religious Jews, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Why would they learn that? Because these religious Jews were saying to the Christians in Philadelphia that they were not really people of the faith. God really did not love them, especially the Gentile converts that were there. Those 
Jewish converts who had left Judaism for Christianity, they were being ridiculed as well. So the synagogue of Satan are those who were Jewish nationally in heritage, in their bloodline, but they were not Hebrews who were living by faith in the Abrahamic covenant of promise. Are you all listening to that? Are you seeing that connection? So nationality-wise, they're Hebrews, they're Jewish, but they had rejected the promise and the Abrahamic covenant, and so they were just religious, no faith. It says these religious Hebrews ridiculed the Christians at Philadelphia for their weakness and for their size. That's why Jesus says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Concerning this ridicule, Jesus promises to vindicate every Christian by demonstrating to those non-believers that he loved them, he loves us, and he is for us. So I want to speak a faithful, encouraging word for all of those of you who are here today who live and work with unbelievers. And not just unbelievers, but unbelievers who like to ridicule or throw stinging jabs with their words or who make light of your faith. I want to say to you, God knows who you are. He sees you. He will vindicate you from all those who make a mockery of your faith. If you're a student here and you're wrestling with the call to missions and somehow your mom and dad has minimized that in your life, you don't don't want to do that. You go somewhere else, you're liable to get killed. I want you to know you stay faithful and true to the Lord and the Lord is going to vindicate you against those who counsel you in an ungodly way. If you're here today and you're a wife and you have an unbelieving husband, and every time that you get ready to go to worship, he smucks or he, he, he uh, smarts off or he smirks. That's what I was going for. What is a smuck? I don't know. That's some, somebody who's smarting off and a, he's a schmuck. And so I guess that's what he is. But they're smarting off, right? Can't wait for the bank statement to get in so he can say something like, I can't believe you gave that money to the church. Quit giving my part of the money to the church. It's my money. Don't forget that. And your spirit is wounded. And you go to bed at night praying for a believing husband. For you believing husbands who are here and you want to go deeper. But your wife is so wrapped up with the world. She cares more about malls and shopping and being online and being connected to her friends. That she makes no time for your family to serve the Lord. She makes no time for her children to go deep in the word because she's just materialistic. She's a modern day Jezebel. And at nighttime you think, I've got to lead better. And as you try to lead, your wife stiff arms you. I have good news for you. For everyone who is faithful to Christ, the Lord will vindicate you. He will provide for you. He will take care of you. Your faith and your labor of faithfulness is never in vain. God knows who you are and he sees your faithfulness and you continue to cry out to him no matter what that pressure or ridicule may look like. I can remember um, working at Metcalf County and I can remember driving a school bus and I was just, 
I was working in four or five things. I was a student pastor. I was teaching maternity leave and substitute teaching, coaching basketball, driving a school bus. And I can remember going down to the bus garage and um, people would say when they hired me, I knew the guy that hired me well and I'd played basketball for him. And he said, now listen, out of all the things you can do, we have a good time down here. So when we're having a good time, don't you get all preachy on us. Right? Don't, you, don't you get all preachy on us. And I said, it just depends on what level of good time you're having, if I get preachy or not. And I began to make good relationships, man, with Ed and Jerry and Doug and Joanna and just, just a bunch of those drivers. There was one driver, an older guy. He would keep me at arm's distance all the time. He was all the time telling uh, perverted, nasty sexual jokes to anybody who would listen. He did not want to be around anybody who was having a faith discussion or a church discussion. If I'd invite someone to church or bring up about Jesus or we, somebody would ask me a Bible question right in that setting, could you imagine being in a bus garage right, waiting to run your route and somebody have a question about life or death or whatever, and they're throwing out those Bible questions. When that question would rise, he was out the door. He was out the door. So people knew that um, it was my birthday, and so they wanted to do this trick, and so they were going to do something to me to celebrate my birthday and break in the, the new guy, which they did and did it really well. But he said, I've got something different for you. He said, I, I didn't want to do that. He said, I got you this present, and I opened that present up, and it was uh, some pornography image. Now, this guy knows I'm a student pastor. He's a bus driver. And I thought, man, I, I don't want that. And I threw it down, and I thought, your day's coming. Your day is coming. And I called him by name, and of course he was laughing and giggling. You know people like that, right? 55 and 60-year-old men acting like 10-year-old boys. How many of you ever work in a factory and you know what I'm talking about? Right? You, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I just thought, you know, the Lord's going to take care of this some way in his timing. And so I worked a year. I worked two years. I, don't know, I drove that bus for probably five years. Um, and I can remember that he never really did soften up. But I was determined. To be honest, when I left that day, I was so mad. Any of y'all ever get mad? And I thought, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach this dude. I'm going to preach this dude a sermon. I'm going to catch him when nobody's around. I'm going to lay into him, right? I mean, I had my woes. You whitewashed sepulcher. I mean, I, you know, I had it lined out. And the Lord gave me zero liberty to do that and said, you need to love this man. And so I just tried to do that. And uh, one of the last couple of years that I was there, uh, we, we started seeing some guys come to faith in Christ. The, the whole demeanor of the bus garage changed in a really, really good way, in a healthy way open faith discussions going on between people. Doug Clemens, uh, Doug Clemens, who was uh, really uh, far from the Lord at that particular time, uh, he later came to faith in Christ, 
and got serious with the Lord, and now he's a lay preacher uh, with the Church of Christ somewhere, right? But as I was, uh, I don't know, a few years later, Doug came to me, and he said, and he called this man by name, and he said, he's been diagnosed with cancer. And I said, is that right? And he said, yeah. He said, I figured you may want to go see him or you'd want to pray for him. And I said, I'll do that. I will pray for him. And I didn't go. I thought, this guy, if he wants me to come, he'll probably ask. And probably six months, seven months in, uh, as a senior adult man, he was getting weaker and weaker. I want you to hear how the Lord worked and how he vindicated the gospel and how he worked in such a tremendous way. That man told Doug, he said, will you tell Shaw to come see me? So I went to his house, and uh, his wife let me in. He had a hospital bed in the living room, and I went over, and uh, he had tears in his eyes. I hadn't spoken the first word. He hadn't spoken the first word. He said, I've asked you to come to do two things. He said, I want you to forgive me. He said, I want you to pray for me. Because I'm going to die and I don't know that I know Christ. I said, you want to hear the gospel? And he said, yes. I said, man, I forgave you a long time ago, so we're square, right? And he mustered a little bit of a smile. And he said, you know how I've been. Do you think God would forgive someone like me? I said, he forgave me. I think he would forgive you. I had the opportunity to share Christ with him, and I wish I could tell you he got saved right then. He didn't. I didn't, I didn't see that, uh, the fruit. I didn't see the harvest of that gospel conversation. But can I tell you that when he passed, I went to the funeral, and his wife said, I want you to know, and she called his name, that he came to faith in Christ about a week before he died. She said it was the sweetest thing. He prayed one night right there in bed. And she hugged my neck and said, thank you so much for coming and sharing the gospel with me. Why did I take 10 minutes to share that story? Some of you all here today, you're living with, your neighbors too, you've got work beside, and somebody is eating your lunch. And you think, does God even know? And I want you to know, he absolutely sees where you are. You remain faithful and you let God uh, deal with those who are opposition to you or opposition to really his kingdom and his gospel. Here's the third thing. There's protection during the judgment trials. Verse 10, he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. This is protection during the seals and the trumpets and the bowls judgments. These tribulation trials intensify with each outpouring of God's wrath toward evil and those who have rejected Christ. We see them begin to unfold in chapter 6, and all the way really um, almost to the end of the book. We just see how these judgments intensify and intensify. And the question is, will believers go through all of these trials? He says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. So some people will read that, and if you are a believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, that the church uh, does not go through any kind of trial, any kind of persecution, and somehow you're caught away, and uh, you are not going to be there. That's where one of those verses you would take that from, and you would say, I believe that 
we're just immune from that. But I would say to you that there's another thing to consider. Will the believers go through all of these trials? Will they go through half of these trials? Will they go through none of these trials? And I would say to you that from the book of Revelation, these judgments are for unbelievers. The word is used, earth dwellers. You say, where do you see that? He said, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, here's what's important for you to know about that. In the Greek, that word, this earth dweller, is always, it always refers to unbelievers. So you see it in Revelation 6, 10, and Revelation 8, 13, and Revelation 11, chapter 10, two times. Uh, Revelation 13, 8, uh, in verse 12 and verse 14, two times. Again, in chapter 17, in verse 2 and verse 8, you see this same Greek word used. Every single time it refers to an unbeliever, this earth-dwelling person. The phrase, keep you from, on the other hand, that we see here in verse 10, does not carry the same sense of being removed totally from the scene, but it means being preserved in the situation, which is really consistent with what Jesus is praying in that great prayer to his Father in John 17, 15, when Jesus makes this clear. He says, I do not ask that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. In being consistent with the Old Testament, when God's, uh, when God's wrath and judgment is being poured out on Egypt, when you see that in Exodus chapter 7 through 12, the plagues that come upon the Egyptians did not harm the Israelites. God protected them in the hour of judgment and trials. And so if you say, preacher, where are you? Here's what I want you to understand. I'm not for sure if we go through them, if we go through part of them, or if we go through none of them. But here is what I can tell you for sure. God keeps us during the judgment and during the trials. Aren't you thankful for that? I'm thankful that my wrath and your wrath was extinguished. The wrath of God that he had for us was extinguished on the cross of Christ. That when he, when Christ died, that God poured out his righteous indignation and his judgment and wrath upon Christ so that you and I would not have to experience that. And so there's that wonderful promise of protection during the judgment trials. There is in verse 11, inspiration to persevere. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And then lastly in verse 12. Stand to your feet so you know I'm going to make this short and so that you'll hang on to every word. Verse 12. There's this promise, this identification, this identification for all eternity. Listen to what he says in verse 12. For the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, my own new name. Do you realize that Jesus' final promise in this passage to those Christians at Philadelphia, his promise to you and I today was to permanently mark them as his possession for all eternity. 
the sense of being a foreigner or a sojourning pilgrim was to be over. I want you to hear that. While we are blessed in salvation and His presence now, while we have purpose in this life, God's continued admonishment in the New Testament is, don't put down deep roots. You're sojourners here. You're traveling through. You're not built for here, but you're built for eternity. Here's His promise. That He is going to mark those believers at Philadelphia He's going to mark you and I with his own name, with his own son, and with his own city. And so the people of God belong, and they find themselves with God forever. How many of you struggle, and sometimes you stray, and you wander from the truth, and you sin, and you struggle, and you... Sometimes your faith is weak and sometimes doubt creeps in and sometimes you're just disobedient. Would everybody in the house raise your hand? Will you do that? Listen to this promise. He says, for all of you who have received me, you've been changed. He says, I am going to mark you and you are going to belong forever. You're never ever going to not belong again. This is his promise as he works in his people and he marks them and he uh, comes to establish his kingdom here on earth that they are never to sin. There's never going to be more struggle. There's never going to be more wandering. There's never going to be more doubt. There's never going to be more misopportunity. We belong to God as pillars. We belong to his son. We're marked. We belong to his city which bears the name of the son. And you and I will belong never to leave the very kingdom of God, the very fellowship of the Father. Boy, I'm looking forward to that promise. If you are, say amen. Boys, it's good when the boys all come home. When it's just me and Tracy and Jake, Man, that big house gets lonely. I start thinking, man, maybe the Lord wants us to go get them Chinese girls. I think, man, it's just getting too quiet around here. Not that Jake is uh, not enough. I mean, Jake's enough. He's like, he's a one-man party to himself. I mean, it's, he's enough, right? Tracy is enough, but what I'm saying to you, it's just like we're disjointed, right? And Caleb and Ruthie are up here, and Levi's down here, and and Kerr's doing his own thing over here. and We just get disjointed. But when everybody comes home, it's a good, good time. If you're an empty nester and you know what I'm talking about, say amen. It's like, this is right. Everybody's together. Don't matter where together is. It's just everybody's together. This is right. Oh, I'm telling you, church fam. If you're a born-again believer, there's coming a day that you will never wander again. You will never stray 
again. Preacher, I would so much want to sell out for God, but every time I sell it for God, every time I repent, every time I try to make a commitment to the Lord, I just blow it and I just fail. That's because you're trying to do it. Just trust the faithfulness and the promise of God and let Him work in your heart and life. He built you for eternity, and if you have been born again, eternity will be 